Greetings, church. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Please meet me in Romans chapter 3, verses 30 and 31. So open your Bibles, please. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels, and then you get to Acts, and then Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 30 and 31 will be our text. And I promise that uh, we will be in Romans, and we will talk about Romans, but we're in a unique context. We're in a unique situation as we come to this text today. And I, I think there's something that's so important about admit, admitting and, and being honest about the space that we're in when we come to the text, not merely in worship as we gather as God's people, but even individually. And, and we're coming in the middle of a very hard season. We're coming to God's word, that is, in, in the middle of a very hard season as a church family. Not only as we've already lamented today, are, are we coming at grappling with the realities of the hate and violence that we um, have seen in Atlanta, but also the rise in words and acts of violence against our Asian American brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors. And so we come heavy. And that's kind of our, like our general posture and perhaps a very specific an intimate posture that you're in today, but also as a church family, we find ourselves in transition, a very difficult transition. This week, we had to say goodbye to one of our elders, Chad Watson and his family, and that's really hard. It's hard to grapple with that. It's a challenge. There, there is sorrow in that. There's lament in that. There's angst in that. For whatever reason, a transition like this happens. We find ourselves learning and adopting, if you will, a new reality about how to be the people of God. And that, that's, that's generally true, but also specifically. It's hard because many of you, like, like me and our elder team, are their friends. They, they let a group, and it's painful for you, those uh, group members, to transition into another group and to learn a new rhythm of community and friendship at Church in the Square. And we see you, and we're grateful for you. We did life together and ministry together for over the past two years with the Watsons and nearly the entire, that's nearly the entire existence of Church in the Square. And so we're coming with the complexity of those emotions. So we're going to get to Romans, but we've got to touch in with that. We've got to touch in with what's happening in our country. We've got to touch in with what's happening in our church family and, and come to God's word because that's how we're coming to God's word. See, when there is discord and disagreement and separation, we are deeply affected. I've gone through the gambit of emotions this past week. There were people from whom I had to ask for forgiveness. I've been hurt. I've been sad. I've been disappointed. I've feared your approval as a church family. Real talk. Worried about what you'd think about me and our elder team and our church family. See, over and over again, my, my thoughts and my feelings, I don't know if you experienced this too, but... They drew me away from God and away from his word. And so this moment is really good for me. It's good for me to acknowledge all of the space and moments and feelings and thoughts that I have as we enter into this moment together as a church family, as I trust God by his spirit has been doing the entirety of our time through the liturgy. See, as we approach a time in the word together, I trust it will be good for you as well, good for all of us. And through this passage, or rather, though this passage may not be like this direct hit on church transitions or, or responding 
to racism or acts of violence and hate. All of God's word is profitable for us because it points us to Christ. All of God's word points us to Christ. To be sure, there are times when we need a particular kind of word of understanding, of wisdom, of comfort. And yet, no matter what passage we go to, God's word is unchanging, but it's also living and active. See, are you with me yet in this? That means that when we come to the word, it always has something to say. And it always says the same thing. But by God's spirit, we hear something fresh. We hear something new, something of our particular moment because it speaks to our hearts. That's one way God draws close to his people through his word. It's how he he comes close to us in the middle of angst and anguish and suffering and frustration. So it's a good reminder that in our need, we don't need the exact right customized to our particular moment word or the perfect passage. We need God. We need God's word. So just open up. Let's just go to his word. So let's read Romans 3 verses 30 through 31 is where God has providentially ordained that we would be together as a church family today. And so we trust him in this. Romans 3 verses 30 and 31 read this way. This will conclude chapter 3. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. These are the very words of God. And we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need your love. We need your guidance. We need your your care. We need your truth. And so, Father, as I have felt stretched, as I have felt the sorrow and anguish of this past week, and, and really only in some ways could I possibly feel the depth of this sorrow, I pray that in particular for my friends, my brothers and sisters who have been in deep anguish this past week, for one reason or another, would you draw close to us through your word right now? That's what we need. No matter the particulars, what we need is you. So would you simply be true to your word and draw close to us, comfort us, speak to us? We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, I confess uh, that the impulse to justify myself is real <laughs> and it is constant. And I've felt that this week. felt the impulse to justify myself, the desire to justify my actions and my thoughts. But there is fundament- this is, there, it's fundamentally broken, something about this impulse that's in our hearts, because we can't justify ourselves. It's impossible. So let's just begin there. See, Paul tells his readers in yet another way here in verses 30 and 31 in chapter 3 that God alone justifies. If you recall, the idea of justification is all about righteousness. When that defensive impulse surfaces in our hearts, what we are longing for is to be seen and known as righteous. We long to be righteous. You long to be righteous. I long to be righteous. And what's more, we desire for people to know and see that we are righteous, that we're, we're good. We've got it together. We're not messy. However, there, there are daily evidences, aren't there? 
There's daily clarity that we are not righteous. Sometimes that comes in the thoughts that we think. Sometimes that, that, that surfaces in the way that we treat one another. Sometimes this is about my view of myself. Sometimes it's about my view of others. See, perfection is a divine trait, not a human one. And so when our weakness or fallenness shows, when we sin, or as Paul has put it in, in chapter three, when we fall short of the glory of God, we have a decision to make. Believe the truth or believe a lie. Believe the truth or believe the lie. And this is what we need to consider today. See, to better understand these moments, these moments we find ourselves in where we have to make this decision, and this decision in particular, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I think this will go a long way in helping us discern the difference between the truth and a lie. So turn there with me. If you're still in Romans chapter 3, turn to the right, past 1 Corinthians. Paul had more to say to the church in Corinth, um, and so he wrote another letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, let's look at verse 5 through 7. Now, Paul is uh, about to compare himself uh, to someone. He's, he's been talking about boasting. So it's within that particular context. And he's already in Romans, in fact, and we looked at a couple of weeks ago, spoken about boasting in Romans 3, verse 27. But now Paul is comparing himself to a particular person and he transitions from that with this uh, statement in these verses. He says, on behalf of this man, verse 5 says, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, the, these verses are vital. What Paul exposes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 are worthy of our time and attention. There's a ton of truth and goodness here. But for our particular consideration, for our, our time, I want to draw your attention to that phrase, a messenger of Satan. Think about that. As Paul is fighting against pride and ego, what he says is conceit. God sends Paul what he describes as a thorn in the flesh. And historians, scholars have debated for millennia about what specifically that thorn in the flesh was. What specifically, what, what that particular thorn was. But, but we really don't know. But that thorn is what Paul calls a messenger of Satan. And, and here's what I think Paul understood and what you and I need to be aware of today in the middle of where we find ourselves. In our distress and our weakness the evil one speaks to us. See, a messenger has something to say, a word to deliver, if you will. Now, let, let's make sure that we're clear. God gave Paul this thorn. God intends this experience of coming face to face with his utter weakness and need to be for Paul's good. See, God tests us for our good. That's James chapter one. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, in trials and discomfort and even elder transitions in, in the wake 
of what we have experienced this past week in Atlanta. The Heavenly Father woos us to himself for our good in order to, to fulfill his eternal promises for us. You see, though Satan speaks to us, though, though there's a messenger of Satan that desires for us to hear a word from him, church, let's know this. The Heavenly Father has something to say too. The Heavenly Father speaks to us. So please, let's make no mistake. Church, don't get it twisted. We are in the middle of a spiritual battle. Now, for many of us, particularly millennials, we sort of discard that kind of language as sensationalism or over-spiritualization. But this is how the Bible describes the situation that we find ourselves in, in a fallen world. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this dark and evil age. The thing that the evil one loves for you to think and loves for me to think is that the battle is against flesh and blood and that we can see our enemy with the naked eye and that we don't need God. We don't have to trust God in our daily pursuits of honoring him, that we can do it on our own. Maybe that's the thing that, maybe that's the very thing that the evil one is whispering to us. It's not a spiritual battle. Well, listen to that. that that's crazy. You can see the problem in front of you. It's your friend. That's the problem. It's that person. That's the problem. It's you. That's the problem. The evil one would love for you to think that you can see the problem. But what the scriptures teach us is that there is a spiritual battle going on. And, the, and, and Satan, through his messengers, is whispering something to us. And the Heavenly Father, by his grace, is speaking to us. See, our weakness is showing. Our fallenness is showing and our need is obvious. The evil one is speaking, God is speaking, and we have a decision to make. Believe the truth or believe the lie. The lie that moralism or religion, that, that kind of heart that believes if I do good, then God will bless me, who will honor me, or give me stuff that I want, right? So we have this sort of transactional relationship with God. That's moralism. Moralism tells us we can shield God from our shame. This was our parents, our first parents' problem. Adam and Eve, they hid in their shame. We believe, in other words, that we can hide our wrong. This has always been part of the human issue, right? That we can say, nothing to see here. Everything is good. Everything's fine. We're happy. He's good. I'm good. They're good. She's good. God bless you. Praise God. All is well. We hide our wrong. See, that actually, it, we, unbeknownst to us, when we act like that, when we act like everything is okay and we have no problems and no pain and no issue and no tension and no sorrow and no lament and no brokenness, we're breaking the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment is bearing false witness. We literally are demonstrating or showing something on Instagram, on Facebook, whatever it is, right? We're showing the world something that is not true. And we're not even talking to our friends in our group about what is. See, the evil one tells us that we can hide, that we can hide our wrong. There, there's another lie that I think we have to be careful of when our weakness shows, when our fallenness shows, when we're in the middle of transition or sorrow or pain or distress. Modernism, that, that is sort of like the prevailing thought of the day, um, reframes morality according to personal standards and not God's. See, we believe that we are not wrong. So religion tells us that we can hide our wrong and moralism tells us that we are not wrong. We can say, 
truth is not something that we can really know. Let's just love each other. Let's let people do what they do. It's all good. Let's not make a big deal about personal preferences. But that would be supposing, that kind of view, that wisdom comes from within. Isaiah 5, 21, woe to you, or rather woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. See, the evil one doesn't just tell us that we can hide. That's the moralism lie. But the evil one also tells us that we are not wrong. That's the lie of modernism. Both are whispers from messengers of Satan, if you will. So contrary then to these lies of moralism and modernism, the gospel shows us that we can walk in the light and darkness has to flee. So in in other words, the gospel tells us you are wrong, but you can be transformed. You can be forgiven. You can be healed. Or another way to think about it is that we can be fully known and fully loved. In other words, to believe the truth is to believe that we can be made right. This is Paul's teaching to the circumcised and uncircumcised in Romans chapter 3, verse 30 and 31. If you've believed the lies that you can hide or that you can not do wrong, if you've come to the end of your pride and to the end of your shame, you can be made right by God. You can be made righteous. You can be justified. The heavenly father tells us the truth and he tells us he sees all of us and he loves us anyway. He sees all of us and loves us. Anyway, that's what Paul's been teaching. This is the word he has been putting on repeat. Notice now in Romans chapter 3, verse 30. Here's what God's word says. So if you're still in 2 Corinthians, go back to the left. I should have put the ribbon in Romans, not in John. Romans chapter 3, verse 30. It says, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So again, God alone justifies. And notice, he justifies the circumcised or the religious or the moral person who believes that lie that they can hide through faith. He also justifies the uncircumcised or the modern person who believes that they can be justified by supposing that they have not done wrong, that they are not wrong. So here's what Paul is saying to us today. Hiding sin does not make you righteous. Reframing sin does not make you righteous. God makes you righteous. God alone justifies. And there is no better time to submit ourselves to this truth and to disregard or flee from those lies than when we face trial, when we face suffering, and when we are in the middle of a spiritual battle. In other words, in our weakness. This is what Paul is admitting and conceding in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that in his weakness, he is finding strength, in the truth of God, in the truth of what God has done through Christ. So, so in this particular passage in Romans, along with helping to clarify what it means to be justified for the circumcised or the uncircumcised, for the religious person or for the modern person, Paul is also telling us two things about God, his nature and his quality. See, both are birthed out of, these, these two things are birthed out of who God is. And all of that, that his, his character, that's where the gospel springs forth, if you will. God is not acting outside of his character in the gospel. That is evidence. It's launching out. It's birthed out of his character. So Paul is telling us about two things. He's telling us about God's grace and about God's providence. Look again at this passage in Romans chapter 3. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then, he asks, overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, 
we uphold it. How could Paul say that? First, the justification of both the circumcised and uncircumcised is by what? How does that happen? What's that word? Look at it. Say it with me. By faith. Faith, has, as, as we've already established over the past number of weeks, is a gift itself. The work of salvation is a gift of God's grace. In other words, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, raising in victory over Satan's sin and death in the grave, those things, that, that, that work of Christ is bestowed upon us through the, the gift of salvation. It's a gift. It's by grace. Nothing we could do could compel Jesus to do that. He does that all by his grace. But also, it gets even better than that, church, that the power to believe all of that, the power to receive all of that by faith is also a gift. So the work of salvation is a grace, and the faith required for salvation is also a grace. Are you with me? That's what Paul is saying then, that God is gracious in all of that, that God is is gracious. He was gracious. He is gracious. He will forever be gracious, church in the square. Secondly, he says that the law, by all of this grace that God is throwing around, the law is not overthrown, but fulfilled or upheld through justification by faith. How could Paul say that? How could he say that the gospel of grace does not deny the moral teachings of the Old Testament? See, a text that the Old Testament is built upon the law. Paul has explained multiple times they were no longer under in Christ. How could he say that? Well, he's already given us an indication in chapter 1 of Romans and also in chapter 3. Flip back maybe a page or two to the left and look at Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Notice, the gospel was promised beforehand through the Old Testament, his prophets. And now turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the righteousness is a part from the law, but the law and prophets were preparing us for this righteousness. They were preparing us to receive this righteousness, this gospel truth. So the second thing that Paul is telling us about God and his nature is that he was, he is, and he forevermore will be in full control over all things, bringing about his singular will through his son, Jesus Christ. God is providential. He is in control and sovereign over the eternal gospel, this good news. See, the gospel is not a new idea that God came up with after he realized that the law was not going to work maybe the way that he thought it was. The gospel is not a new idea. It's the original idea. He was always intending through his son to bestow grace upon those who are in Christ. So Paul tells us two things. God is gracious and God is providential. He is loving towards us and he is in control over all things. That means by his grace, he justifies by faith and he always has. This is what he's always doing. And we'll look at that next week as we consider Abraham and how it is that Abraham, the, the father of the people of God, could have interacted with righteousness by grace and by, by grace through faith because God is providential. See, and by his providence, then the law is not overthrown. The law is actually upheld. 
It, it accomplishes what it intended to accomplish. It is fulfilled in holiness and in righteousness. See, truth is upheld and lies are overthrown. Holiness, then, is established by love. That's the language that Paul uses in verse 31. So go back. If you're still in verse 21 in, in Romans chapter 3, look again. Put your eyes back on this good word in 30 and 31. This language he uses in 31, overthrown and uphold. Overthrown is a forceful word that means to render powerless or to, to render inoperative, to put out of use. Uphold is a grounding word that means to set up or to bring into force. So this is the exchange. This exchange, rather, is based upon God's character. Because of who God is, the law is not rendered meaningless because of Jesus. Rather, the law is brought into force by the gospel. Here's what it means. Let's just boil it down. What are we talking about? Jesus' love does not mean we don't have to obey. Jesus' love does not mean that we do not have to obey. Jesus' love means that we are compelled and able to obey. Let me say that again for the people in the back. Kidding, still talking to a camera. Can't wait for next week. Lord, thank you. Jesus' love does not mean we don't have to obey. Jesus' love means that we are compelled and able to obey. Hiding sin does not make you righteous. Jesus does. Reframing sin does not make you righteous. Jesus does. Jesus alone justifies through faith by his grace and providence. We might say that God upholds the truth and overthrows lies through Christ. He makes us righteous by our newly centered righteousness. But our newly centered righteousness, rather, does not free us from obedience. It actually empowers us to obey the truth. So the lies that we believe that, that we can hide our wrong and that we are not wrong need to be relinquished, need to be released, need to be admitted. We need to confess that we believed those lies and we can take up the truth of the gospel, which says, yes, we are wrong and no, we cannot hide, but Jesus can make you right. Jesus can make you righteous. However, here's where things get real. See, in trial and in transition and in our sin, we are tempted to uphold these lies that righteousness and obedience are, in fact, inoperative, that they've been overthrown. We believe that the gospel actually overthrows the law. When we sin, we're believing that the gospel overthrows the law, like we don't have to obey it anymore because God loves me, right? We actually are attempting then to overthrow the truth in our thinking. That's the decision that we have to make, specifically and particularly in trials and temptations and testing in hard seasons and challenging seasons. That's the decision we have to make. Believe the truth or believe a lie. We uphold the truth and the gospel or we overthrow it. We uphold righteousness or we overthrow it. And, and just for clarity, there's no in-between. We either submit ourselves fully to this gospel and to his righteous, to God's righteousness and his truth, or we give ourselves over to that messenger of Satan who whispers untruths into our hearts. There's no in-between. I think this works itself out in a couple of primary ways in Paul's original audience that I think translate directly into our hearts. First, the moral person upholds this lie of self-righteousness, like the circumcised Jew in Paul's context, which overthrows the truth, particularly of God's grace that we've looked at. See, we believe God 
in other words, is within our reach. This lie has a few layers to it. Self-righteousness is really, really tricky. Believe me, I've got a master's degree, saved from the grace of Jesus. Master's degree in self-righteousness. Self-righteousness believes that sin is always specific and it's simple. Specific and simple. I mean, think, think about this. God help us open our eyes in this. And so the self-righteous person willingly confesses superficial and surface, surface level sins, which can be proven by page and paragraph and punctuation mark through the letter of the law. See, the, they, they obey, we obey in, in that mindset out of obligation to receive glory, but not out of love. We believe that we, or rather we obey out of obligation in order to receive glory, but we don't obey out of love. In pursuing then a surface level righteousness and only admitting explicit faults, we miss what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. He said it this way in Matthew chapter 23 in his scathing review of the religious and self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. Here's what he says, Matthew 23, verse 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, rules that they made up about tithing, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Church. What Jesus is speaking about, helping to unearth here about even our own hearts, is that this kind of, this manner of thinking of self-righteousness cultivates the lie that we can hide our brokenness and shame by doing these superficial acts of righteousness. By doing things well, we don't have to admit that we have failed and neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. When was the last time you confessed that you were not a just person? When was the last time you, you confessed you weren't a merciful person? When was the last time you, you confessed you weren't faithful in all of the things that God has called you to do? Usually what we're waiting for in self-righteousness is, is a very specific way. Prove it to me. Prove it to me that I did this, that, or the other thing. Prove it to me that that was the wrong thing. Or prove it to me that I should have to do that. But what, what the Lord is saying, we should always be those who are just going, I'm not just. I'm not merciful. God, help me. And so when somebody brings an accusation that we may not have been merciful or just or faithful in that particular way, God, I know the Lord has revealed that to me. Can you, can you help me? God, help me in this. Not as doormats of believing that anything anyone ever says to us is, is actually true, but as those who are hopeful. I don't have to hide. I don't have to hide my wrong, and I don't have to act like I'm not wrong. I can submit to the truth. You tracking with me? The modern person upholds the lie of self-sufficiency, like the uncircumcised Gentile likely would have, which then overthrows the truth of God's providence. We don't believe that. We don't believe that he's in control of all things. In other, instead, we believe that we are in control of our own destinies. This lie is rampant in our culture. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. The only inherent sin of this culture that we are willing to concede is the idea that anyone would take uh, freedom away from you. That ultimately is always sinful. We want to be in control of our own destinies. This is our gospel message in the modern age. And this lie, too, is sort of multifaceted. See, self-sufficiency believes that sin is not a big deal. And, and it's, if, if it's a real thing at all, 
Remember, the secular perspective reframes righteousness or the law around preferences and perspective. Obedience is about, is about submission to our inner voice and, and our truest self, which is really a masked voice of the evil one saying, you're not wrong and do whatever makes you feel happy. That, that's the way that the evil one deceives us. To be sure, in a given situation, you, you may actually be accurate. And happiness is not evil in and of itself. But the Bible makes it clear we are a deeply broken creation and will only find true happiness in the Lord, not in our own hearts. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all things. And so, according to the Bible, according to the Bible, if you always do what your heart tells you and your heart is wicked and deceitful above all things, then you constantly will be doing wicked and deceitful things. If your heart is the indication or the guiding light of your life, you will constantly do wicked and deceitful things. That's what your heart does. That's what, our, that's what my heart does. See, the modern person believes the lie of self-sufficiency, that what I need, I've already got in and of myself. And we see no need for God. If you ever believe that you've been led to a particular place where you don't need God, you've been deceived by a lie from Satan that the modern mind is tempted to believe all the time. God never leads you to a place where you don't need him. God never leads you to a, a moment of maturity or, or, or to some sort of peak of Christian experience where you can move beyond his grace, where you can move beyond your need for him, where you can move beyond his mercy and his justice and his love, and his affection and his truth and his power. You can't do it. And why would you, church? Why would you want to? except if you've been deceived, except if you've believed a lie. See, these then are the impulses and lies that show up particularly in hard moments when our weakness is showing. The evil one whispers to us, you can hide and you are not wrong. And so if we're not careful, what we do is we uphold those lies and at the very same moment, concurrently, simultaneously, we overthrow the truth. Satan whispers, to Jesus too. In a hard moment, amidst trials, Matthew tells us the tempter came to him, came to Jesus. He asks Jesus to turn stones into bread. Why? Because Jesus was hungry. Satan was telling him, you're not wrong. Eat this bread. You deserve it. You're hungry. You're not wrong. Do it. But Jesus understood something and what helps us to give us vision. Give us vision, God that the real temptation was about dependency. And so Jesus responds this way in Matthew chapter four, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, Jesus knew that his real need was not food. It was his heavenly father. See, Satan says, you're not wrong. And Jesus says, my God will supply all of my needs. Can I get a witness? The evil one persisted in the wilderness. He took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of this world and their glory. And Satan said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, what was the temptation about this particular one? I think it was about conformity and comfort. Why? Because Satan knew that Jesus would never worship Satan outright. He, never would, he knew he would never worship him outright. So he offers him something. He offers him something. He thought maybe... Satan thought, maybe if I show Jesus a different kind of instant glory of this world, that it would entice the sun. 
After all, God's glory, the glory of God's kingdom, requires taking a road of suffering and death. And all the kingdoms of this world and their glory are built upon the ease and adulation of their kings. See, the kingdom of Jesus was about his humility and self-sacrifice and his suffering. And so the evil one speaks to Jesus. He tempts him. He draws him to a different kind of kingdom and essentially says, you don't have to die. Satan says, you can hide. Jesus says, my God's grace is sufficient. In the wilderness, Jesus upheld the law and the truth. And in doing so, he overthrows Satan and his lies. This work, of course, is most vividly, this work of what Jesus accomplished and did in the wilderness of upholding the truth and dismissing lies is most vividly demonstrated on the cross. See, we see on the cross the grandeur of God's grace. On the cross, we see the pinnacle of his providence. On the cross, Jesus overthrows or unseats. He breaks apart the kingdoms of this world. On the cross, Jesus overthrows the darkness. He overthrows sin itself. He overthrows death. He overthrows the evil one forever. But on the cross, he also upholds. On the cross, Jesus upholds his kingdom that is not of this world and his true glory. On the cross, Jesus upholds the light. He upholds and he centers the truth. He upholds the laws of righteousness. He upholds righteousness itself. He upholds life in his resurrection. He upholds the will of his father through his obedience. See, on the cross, Jesus upholds the truth and he overthrows the lies. What does all of this mean? What's this mean for you and me when we face the lies every single day that you can hide that you are not wrong, how might we hear the voice of God saying that he can make us right? What's all this mean? Well, Jesus not only knows, church, what you are going through, what we are going through as a country, what we are going through as a church family right now, because he walked through that in the temptations of the garden and he walked to that on the cross but also he has overcome what we are going through. See, he, he has not just gone through, hear this, this will preach for us today. He has not just gone through what we've gone through. He has overcome what we are going through. Are you with me? He has not just gone through it. He has overcome it. This is why he can say through the psalmist in Psalm 23, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear evil. Why? Because I'm with you. And he says, in the New Testament, in this world, you will have trouble, but fear not. Why? Because I've overcome the world. So Jesus is not just the God who can empathize with us. He is the God who empowers us. Hear this, church. Jesus empathizes with us, but Jesus also empowers us. If he only does one of these things, he's not Lord and God. If he only empathizes with us, he might be a nice guy, but he's not savior. If he only empowers us, he might be God, but he's not closer than a brother. Thanks be to God then that Jesus Christ is both. He is the one who empathizes with our pain and he is the one who has overpowered all things on the cross. Therefore, he can comfort us because he is our help. He draws near to us and he pulls us out of the brink. And so when you hear those whispers in the middle of your spiritual battle, when Satan speaks lies, hear the father's voice of truth that you can be made right. That you can be made right because Jesus has empathized with you and Jesus has overcome that he might empower you. 
In Jesus, then, we are compelled when we hear the voice of God drawing us to truth that we can be made right, we are compelled by Jesus Christ and able to hear his voice and obey. May it be so. Heavenly Father, help us. We thank you that through your Son you have empathized with us and by his wounds we have been healed. Therefore, we are empowered by your Spirit. I pray for my sisters and brothers. When they hear the voice of the evil one saying, you can hide or you're not wrong, would we speak back to those lies, the truth, I don't have to hide because I walk in the light. And I know I'm wrong, but I've been forgiven. My God has made me right. Make us right. Make us righteous. Make us a people saved and sent by Jesus into this world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.